All right, so lesson six is entitled The Journey to Mount Sinai. And this is a big change. It's a, it's a big shift in the narrative here. Now that Egypt is behind them, uh, Pharaoh is conquered and drowned uh, very ironically in the, in the waters of the Red Sea, just as he killed the Hebrew boys. Now he is drowned as well. So that's really poetic justice there for him. But now they're moving on in the desert moving towards the purpose for their deliverance, which is Mount Sinai, right? Remember this theme, freedom from and freedom for. They're free from Pharaoh in Egypt and slavery to be free for a proper relationship and a covenant with God. So that's kind of where we are right now. We're shifting towards the freedom for part of this journey here. And so there are various literary and theological themes I kind of want to introduce this lesson off with. And the first is this great quote, actually, um, we'll tee this off nicely from your commentary, the Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. It says this, this next section here describes Israel's journey in the desert on the way to Sinai, chapter 16 through 18, which is what we're gonna study in this lesson. And it has strong literary parallels with the wilderness wanderings of the second generation. Thus accounts of Israel's travels in the wilderness, characterized by God's gracious provision, despite Israel's ungrateful complaining, bracket the narrative of God's grant of a covenant to lead Israel at Sinai that stands at the center of the Pentateuch. All right, end quote. That's a little long-winded here, but basically what it's saying is, you know, the center of the Pentateuch is this great, this incredible covenant ceremony where God um, gives himself to his people at Mount Sinai. And before this great center narrative of the Sinai covenant, you have Israel wandering in the wilderness, complaining, oh, God provides for them. And after Sinai, you've got the second generation of Israel complaining in the wilderness, despite God's provision for them. So that's kind of what's going on here as we move into this next section is God always giving himself towards his people in unending patience, forgiving them, taking care of them, and yet they're constantly whining, complaining, murmuring, and fighting against Moses and God. So that's kind of what's going on here. So what he, what he, the purpose of taking them through the wilderness, not just here, but in the second generation after Mount Sinai here, is to teach them a whole bunch of very important things. And by extension, I should say teach us as well. Because as you continue to follow the typology, the spiritual applications and the moral applications here is that remember, we are Israel, right? We are Israel individually as the soul, right? We can see in the story of Israel, the kind of spiritual battles that we must fight and not fall into the temptations that they fell into. But also as, as a church as a whole, we, we don't want to fall into these, to these issues and these temptations and sins. So we are Israel. So when we study all of this, you know, we are in the desert wanderings of life. We have passed through the um, the typological Red Sea of baptism. So now we are wandering before we get to the promised land of heaven. We don't want to act and behave as these knuckleheads did, okay? We want to trust God. We want to uh, throw ourselves in his merciful love and just trust that he's going to take care of us. So these really are the lessons that are meant to teach Israel and by extension teach us. In fact, that's what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or chapter 10, verse 6 and following. We'll get there here pretty soon. So number one, the first lesson, they have to realize they're completely dependent upon God for everything, all the basic necessities, whether you're hungry, whether you're thirsty, whether you're cold, whether you know you have enemies attacking you. So you got to trust God. So number one, you're completely dependent upon God. And then number two, you must trust in him. Once you realize that you're dependent upon God for everything and that God does love you, he will take care of you. He will protect you. You just need to trust and throw yourself in his merciful love. So this is what really Moses will say to the second generation in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really Moses' last will and testament. He is not going to go enter into the promised land. He's giving a second law to the Israelites before they go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. 
And he says something really, really beautiful in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out upon you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. That is, that is an awesome explanation that Moses gives to Israel here in Deuteronomy. Your God is your father, right? And a good father disciplines his son to train his son in righteousness and virtue and maturity. That's what God was doing with Israel in the wilderness, letting them go hungry, letting them thirst, to see what was in their heart, to humble them and to make them realize they can't do anything without God. And not only that, but there's more to life than just filling your belly with bread, right? This classic line here that Jesus even quotes when he's fighting Satan in the wilderness temptations, man uh, does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So these are the great lessons that Israel must learn here in this, in this, these three chapters that we're going to be talking about. But then, of course, during the 40 years that they wander in the wilderness after they leave Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. So I really, really like Deuteronomy 8. It explains a bit of the rationale, the divine rationale of why God lets them go hungry. And again, the applications for us are incredible. Why does God allow in his permissive will bad things to happen to us on the whole spectrum from small annoyances and inconveniences to serious illness or loss of loved one or loss of job or financial problems or whatever it is? He wants us to realize that we depend completely on him, but that he is a good father and that he wants to help us grow and mature. And we must trust in him and trust in his care and provision and protection. Okay? So great life applications over and over again. Oh, really quickly before I move on, I think it's pretty cool too that not only did Israel have the miracles of the manna and the rock and all this stuff we're going to talk about, but it's also cool that their clothing never wore out, right? You know, they're wandering and walking around for 40 years and their clothes are always, you know, they're, they're fine. They're not wearing out. Their feet didn't swell. All these cool little side miracles that you would think about. I mean, if you go, you know, walking 20 miles, you, you know, you're starting to, your feet start to hurt a little bit. So God took care of all the details. I think that's awesome. Okay, so those are just sort of the literary and theological themes as we move into this new block and section and chapter, so to speak, of their journey towards Mount Sinai, which again is the purpose of everything. So we left off last lesson with this beautiful song of Moses and Miriam in chapter 15, praising God for destroying Pharaoh. You know, he is greater than all the gods. He's redeemed his people, all this beautiful language here in this song. And we've left off in verse 22. So let's read that here, and then we'll get back to explaining it. So chapter 15, verse 22 says, Then Moses led Israel onward from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter, therefore it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the, the plagues, the diseases upon you, which I put upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. All right, we'll stop there. So 
They're just just getting off on their journey here, and they get to this place called Marah, where they have waters. The waters are bitter. So bitter is mar in Hebrew, and so it's very creative, right? It's really simplistic, actually. It's like, hey, these waters are bitter. What should we name the place? Well, let's name it bitter, right? So they do this all the time. Like They're just very not creative in their place names. So Marah means bitter because the waters were too bitter. So very, very intelligent. And the people begin to murder, uh, murmur, not murder, although later they do want to murder Moses. But they begin to murmur three times in our story today. We're going to see how three times they murmur against him and really they're murmuring against God. Whenever there's a challenge, whenever there's a difficulty, uh, there's a roadblock, an obstacle, they begin to complain and rebel against God. That, what's the life application? Do we do that? When things get difficult, when there's a challenge, when there's a roadblock and an obstacle, do we begin to complain against God? Do we begin to test him? I'll talk, what, what, is that, what does it mean to test God? We'll talk about that later here with the water from the rock. Um, but are, are we rebellious against him or not? Because these Israelites are rebellious. And so God warns the people in verse 26, if you will obey me, if you will listen to my voice, then you will have none of the diseases and plagues, plagues that I sent upon Egypt. And that's going to be really important later on when we look at you know the stories of Deuteronomy because um, every covenant has blessings and curses attached to it. And so the plagues and the diseases, they're all curses for disobedience, but they're remedial. They're supposed to make Israel come back to God, kind of wake them up, right? Sober them up and shake them and say, what are you doing? You're turning away from God. That's what those diseases are meant and those plagues are meant to accomplish there. And so God says, look, I am the God. I am your healer. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful concept, right? I am your healer. I am your redeemer. I am your father. All of these images that we're seeing here in the Exodus account, I wish you well. I wish you good. So don't murmur. Don't complain. Don't rebel. I'm going to take care of you. And he did in this particular story when he tells Moses, take a tree, throw it into the water, and then the water will become sweet. It'll become potable, right? They can drink it. Now, there's a lot of typology with this very, very simple story that the church fathers have always pointed out. There's a number of things here. Number one, the bitter waters represent the bitterness of life's sufferings. Because in this life, in this wilderness wanderings of our life, there is sufferings. You can run, but you can't hide from suffering. Whether it's physical or mental or spiritual or emotional suffering, it comes and it goes. But that's part of this broken world that we live in. There is suffering that's involved. And so it is bitter and it is difficult, right? It is, it's not potable at all. You, you, don't, you can't, we, we don't want to suffer. But when Moses throws the tree into the water, it becomes sweet. And the church fathers say that represents the cross, the cross is the tree of life. All the fathers talk about how the cross is the tree of life. And so when you put the cross into the bitterness of our sufferings, what happens? It becomes sweet because suffering has meaning with Christ. It's still difficult, right? It still teaches us that we need to have self-mastery and penance for our sins and mortification for our um our uncontrolled desires and urges. Suffering is very, very important when united to the cross. It is redemptive. Suffering becomes redemptive when united to the cross and united to Jesus. And so the, the saints will say this all the time, right? Where there's a very famous quote where St. Therese, she's one of my favorite saints, St. Therese of the zoo. She says at the end of her life, when she's about to die from tuberculosis, she can no longer suffer because all suffering is sweet to her. That's mind-blowing, right? That is mind-blowing, and it's the perfect quote to explain what the fathers are saying here, where when you are so united to Christ in the spiritual life, and you have matured so much 
and you're in the unitive way, you can't suffer anymore because you and Christ are one, right? You're transformed into Christ. It's so incredible. Now, I'm certainly not there yet. I get a headache. I have a handful of Advil. I, I run away from suffering, okay? So I'm just at the, the very beginning of the very... the. The very beginning of the spiritual life, the, the Mount Carmel, I'm at the bottom right there. Uh, so, but this is the this is the reality. This is the beauty. The cross helps us to endure the suffering, and it will become sweet. So, I, I really, really love that imagery and that typology there. Throw the tree, the cross, into the bitterness of your sufferings, and it will become sweet. Now, there's more typology though, where Tertullian has said this something beautiful. It's in your notes. He says, "Quote the waters of Marah." made fresh by the wood of the tree, prefigure the waters of baptism, made holy and life-giving by the cross of Christ. That is also true because whenever you see water, there's baptismal imagery, okay? It's all over the place, whether it's creation story, the flood. Uh, we talked, of course, about the Red Sea, the Jordan River, name in the Syria, and then, of course, this story as well. There's always baptismal imagery going on here. So when the cross is thrown into the water, it's basically sanctified, right? So the waters are made life-giving by the cross. And that's also very, very true. And liturgically, we see this in a number of different instances. Very simply, right, when the priest blesses the water to, be, to make it holy and make it a sacramental or blesses the baptismal waters, he makes the sign of the cross over it. That is echoing this story. Also, the Paschal candle. The Paschal candle, when it's dipped into the waters at the Easter Vigil, right, in preparation for the baptism of the catechumens, it's also echoing this story. So water is bitter on its own, but with the cross, it becomes life-saving and life-giving. And there's more typology there to meditate on and to ponder here, okay? Now, one more thing before we move on, and that is lessons that we need to learn. So I want to take you, I mentioned this a, a while ago, I believe. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and following, uh, St. Paul basically warns us in 1 Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to come back to multiple different times here because it is a, a, a great chapter where he goes to the events of the Exodus and he mentions all of these things that we've seen. We even talked about it in the last lesson. He's going to make applications for the Christian church. Well, in verse 6, he says, all these things are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. And then he goes into a, a whole bunch of warnings here. So these are warnings for us. We, you know, to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus says very famously in Luke 12, 48. So we have the realities that these events in the Exodus have pointed forward to. These are signs. These are visible, powerful signs of even more powerful spiritual realities through the life of the church and the sacraments. So to whom much is given, much is required. And so when God says to Israel right here, you know, take heed and listen to my voice. And if you listen, it's going to go well. If you don't listen, you know, you're going to have all these bad things happen to you. Again, they're remedial. They're meant to wake them up. The same thing is true for us. Okay, so we can't forget when we read these stories, we can't forget it's a warning for us. So this next little section here, this one verse, verse 27, is really proof that God provides for his people, right? So he says, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Essentially, I know I'm paraphrasing. But then he shows them in verse 27, because they came to a place called Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So here they are in the desert. They just had issues about not being able to drink. And God you know, provides for them and then brings them to this oasis, 
this beautiful oasis in the middle of the desert with water and with shade. Now, it's very symbolic here. The church fathers will say the 12 springs of water, that's echoes of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So you got one spring for every tribe, but it also points forward to the 12 apostles for the new Israel in the New Testament. These 70 palm trees, that is echoing the table of nations on the one hand, as well as the 70 uh, people who came down with Jacob and Jacob's family in chapter 1, verse 5. We talked about all of that before. So it's beautiful here that there's this oasis in the desert here that God provides for his people, and it all foreshadows the provision that God will have for his church as well, okay? The 12 apostles will be providing um, you know, the, 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 this water and the shade for all the 70 nations that are typified here in, or back in chapter 10 of Genesis. So God, God is taking care of them. So they, they should just never complain again, right? God will take care of them, and that's not what we see. <laughs> we continue to read in chapter 16, and there's more problems here. 